Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this is a blessing to you. Let's jump into the sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to welcome all of you again to worship here at Knox. We're so glad all of you are with us. As many of you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series called O Come, Let Us Adore Him, which is looking at some of the most popular and most powerful Christmas carols that we sing in the church this time of year, about their history, the powerful ways that they convey the truths of the Bible to us. So we've looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Last week, we learned about O Little Town of Bethlehem, and this week, we continue with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's packed with scripture references, but the main themes come from the great Christmas text in Luke chapter 2, which tells us about the birth of Jesus. I'm going to read that scripture in a moment, but before I do that, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that your son Jesus would be present with us today in the power of his Holy Spirit. Grant, Lord, that we might hear his word to us, understand it, and live its truth out in our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. A reading from the second chapter of Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those he favors. The word of the Lord. So if you look at page 31 in your hymnal, you'll find today's hymn there, and you'll see three names under the title. 
The first is Charles Wesley, who wrote the words. The second and third are Felix Mendelssohn and William Cummings, who are responsible for the music. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Charles Wesley. He was born in 1707, and he was the youngest of 18 children. I don't know what grocery shopping was like in that family. I prefer not to think about it. He was famously the brother of a man named John Wesley, who founded the modern-day Methodist Church. He studied at Oxford and was ordained a priest in the Church of England. And in 1735, he sailed to North America to be the personal secretary of James Oglethorpe, who was the founder of the colony of Georgia. So he spent some time in the States. This trip was a very important personal and professional step for Charles Wesley. He had a lot of his hopes pinned on it, and it was a total flop. After a few months, he returned to England discouraged and homesick. Not long afterward, in 1738, after a period of illness, he had a profound encounter with the Lord Jesus, and he rededicated his life to him. And he endured many hardships in his life after that, often traveling hundreds of miles on horseback to share the gospel. But he was universally remembered for his cheerful, encouraging disposition. One contemporary wrote, his religion was of the right sort, not gloomy and cynical, but cheerful and benevolent. Charles Wesley wrote hundreds of hymns hundreds and hundreds of them, many of which are still remembered and sung today. After the last service, someone approached me and said, Dave, do you know that it's Charles Wesley's birthday today? And I said, no. <laughs> it's his birthday today, so I like to think he's part of the heavenly choir that we're talking about today. He wrote the lyrics to this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, about a year after his encounter with Jesus, and we think it was inspired by the joyful chiming of church bells in London as he walked to church. Wesley originally called it a hymn for Christmas Day, and the original version begins, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. Now raise your hand if you know what a welkin is. Darren does, because he was here at the last service. Thank you, thank you, Darren. I appreciate that. Uh, I didn't know what it was before I wrote this sermon. A welkin is an old English word for the vault of heaven. Wesley was saying that all of heaven's vastness rings with praise to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Now, a few years after he published the words to this hymn, one of Charles Wesley's friends, George Whitfield, who was a famous evangelist in his own right, took some creative liberties with the words of this hymn. He took the song and changed the opening words to the ones we now know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Now, Charles Wesley was none too pleased with this decision, first because George Whitfield did not tell him before he did this, and second because Charles Wesley was a real stickler for biblical accuracy, and he was annoyed because the Gospel of Luke doesn't actually say that the angels were singing. It just says that they were praising God. But 
for better or for worse, the new words stuck. Um, probably because it's more exciting to sing about angels than it is to sing about Welkins, but also because it so perfectly expresses the overflowing spirit of Christmas joy. So with George Whitfield's tweaks, Charles Wesley's hymn was sung faithfully for over 100 years before it was finally paired with the melody that we've become accustomed to. The melody was written by a composer named Felix Mendelssohn, and it was originally written for a completely secular occasion. It was written to celebrate Johannes Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press. Mendelssohn was not a particularly religious person, and he confided to some friends of his that he did not think the music would ever be good for a religious tune. <laughs> but somebody proved him wrong. Around 1850, a musician named William Cummings had the stroke of inspiration to take Charles Wesley's words and to pair them with Mendelssohn's melody. And the result is a hymn we know and love today almost 200 years later. So that's a little bit about the history of this hymn, where it came from. What about its themes? What about its resonance with the Bible? Luke tells us that when the angels told the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, they saw a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now, I'm with Whitfield. I agree that the angels were singing, okay? But the question is, why were they praising God? Why were they doing it? We get our answer to that question a little bit earlier in the passage when the angel tells the shepherds, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. The angels are celebrating because Jesus has been born and Jesus is our Savior. He's come to save us from our sin. So what is sin? It's one of those churchy words we use a lot. We might not exactly know what we're talking about, and it's a deceptively simple question. You can ask what is sin in a few words. It'll take you all day to fully understand it. There's three aspects of sin I want to talk about today that help flesh out what it really is, how it works, and how Jesus saves us, saves it, us from it. Three aspects of sin. I want to talk about. The first and most obvious aspect of sin is simply the wrong deeds that we do. We all say and do things that are wrong from time to time that aren't what God wants us to do, and these actions are sinful. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, sometimes they're really important, sometimes they're seemingly trivial. None of us gets through life without performing some of those deeds. Losing your temper at your kids or saying something hurtful to a friend. Stealing from your employer or cheating on your spouse. Kicking a cute puppy or rooting for the Packers. It's all sin. <laughs> I want you to know that after the last service, there was only one irritated Packer fan who came and talked to me. So I'm doing pretty good so far. So sin is the bad things that we do, but it's way more than that. It's not only the bad things that we do. A second aspect of sin is our wrong disposition, the wrong way that our hearts are wired. Each of us has an innate disposition to commit sins. And when people in the church talk about original sin, this is what they mean, that we have a, a bent 
towards sin, a tendency towards sin that affects our hearts and minds and attitudes, even if it never finds expression in our deeds. Even if you were all alone on a desert island, (laughs) you would still have sin inside. Um, In the early centuries of Christianity, there were monks who Uh, ran away from the cities, and they lived in the wilderness with no one around for miles. And they thought that by doing this, they could lead holier lives because they wouldn't be tempted by sin. And we still have some of their writings today, and they are full of the chagrined realization (laughs) that sin was there with them too, in those isolated places, in the crooked disposition that they brought out to the wilderness with them. Many years ago, a pastor friend of mine told me a story about visiting a member of his congregation, an older woman who was homebound. And you might think, well, no sin in her life, right? He went to go see her, and he he had the temerity to ask how she was doing that day. And she responded with an angry tirade. What a stupid question. What do you mean, how am I doing? I'm miserable in here. No one ever comes to see me. My kids never call, blah, 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 blah a stream of anger and resentment and self-pity. And many years after the fact, my friend still spoke to me about this as an illustration of the way our disposition can get the better of us, even if it never finds expression in particular actions. So sin is our wrong actions, and it's our wrong dispositions. And third... Sin is our wrong social structures. It's our wrong social structures. Sin is the wrong social practices we have around us that are carried out by human beings that cause sin and harm. These are things like racism, sexism, militarism, consumerism. A lot of isms pop up here. These sinful structures are bigger than any one person, and they make it harder for all of us to be good and easier for all of us to be bad. That's what sinful structures do. How many of you have heard of a book by Colson Whitehead called Underground Railroad? Raise your hand if you've heard it. I can see a few, a few hands going up. So I just got done reading that book. It came out like five years ago which is totally on brand for me, because I tend to be about five years behind the times. So it was perfect. It was an amazing book, very powerful. And as the name suggests, it's about the story of a runaway slave and her journey towards freedom. One of the things the book does so well is it shows the sinful impact of slavery on people who were um, slaves, people who wanted their freedom, as well as people who were never enslaved. And it shows the incredible, incredible pressure that was exerted by that sinful social system so that most people regarded slavery with indifference and acceptance. A small minority defended it vociferously, and then there was this group over here that believed slavery was wrong but was scared to speak out about it, scared to take action to address it, scared to help runaway slaves, scared to publish pamphlets. The story takes that historical situation and makes it real and vivid, and it's a very powerful illustration of sinful social structures. So sin takes many forms. 
It's the wrong actions we commit, it's the wrong dispositions we have, and it's the wrong social structures around us. But in the end, as varied as sin is, it's also very repetitive. It only does one thing, and that's hold us captive. Hold us captive. We can be trapped by our sinful actions, desperately wishing that we could turn back the clock and go and change those things that we did, but knowing that we can't. We can be trapped by our sinful dispositions, held hostage by some deeply rooted selfishness or resentment or indifference that just won't seem to go away. And we can be trapped by sinful structures of society, unable to escape these systems that we know are wrong but seem too big and too powerful to change. In each case, sin is something that involves us, our thoughts and our behaviors and our attitudes and our choices, but it's also something that's bigger than just us. It's like being caught in a web, and it's not something we can fix by ourselves. So that's a little bit about what sin is. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus is our Savior, and he came to set us free. On the cross, Jesus has done what no human being can do for themselves. He has broken the power of sin. He has liberated us from our bondage, just like God liberated the Hebrew slaves from Egypt thousands of years ago. It is no accident that Paul says simply, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Jesus can forgive our sins, heal our fallen disposition, and break the power of sinful social structures. Jesus offers us forgiveness for our wrong actions. He can wipe the slate clean and help us put the past behind us. And what's more than that, he can set right our wrong dispositions, put a new spirit in our hearts. Some of you know that back when I was in seminary, I worked with people in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And it was truly amazing to see God working in their lives in that place. People were set free from hurts and resentments that had haunted them for years. They were able, for the first time, to ask for forgiveness from God and from others that they'd wronged in big or small ways. But it wasn't just that. One of the most profound moments for me often came when a newly sober person realized that they'd had a day or a week or even a month where they didn't experience that persistent desire for drugs or alcohol. Not only had their behavior changed, but God was beginning to change their dispositions. That old part of them that always wanted the same old thing was slowly becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. I've seen that. It's real. It's happened to people. People you know that are part of this congregation and God can do something similar for you. When Jesus comes into our lives, he has the power to forgive our sins and change our hearts.
But Jesus doesn't only change our hearts. He changes the world. He uses us to disarm and break and change those sinful social structures that hold people captive. He uses us to make the world more like he wants it to be. How many of you have heard of a man named John Woolman? Raise your hand, except Darren. Very few of you, right? I had never heard of him until I read about him in a book maybe 12 or 13 years ago, and his story has stuck with me. As you might guess from his outfit, he kind of looks like the Quaker Oats guy. He was a Quaker, and he lived in the Philadelphia area in the 1700s. And in the middle of his life, he had a profound spiritual experience, an encounter with God that convicted him that slavery was morally wrong. And so uh, he also became convicted that wealthy Quakers, of which he was one and of which there were many, should not own slaves. And so he began to do this remarkable thing. He traveled down south and this, of course, was before expressways, before cars, before planes. He traveled down south via horse, and he visited personally with every Quaker slave owner. And he met with them one-on-one, -on -one, and he began to explain to them, this is why slavery is wrong, why it's incompatible with Christianity, why its tenets are contradictory to those of the Bible. He was patient, he was diligent, he was persistent. And it worked. <laughs> one by one by one, those Quaker slave owners set their slaves free. And with every one that set their slaves free, there began to be more and more momentum within the Quaker church to be an abolition church. And by the time John Woolman died in 1777, 75 years before the Civil War finally freed all the slaves, there was not a single Quaker slave owner throughout all the South. One person did that. Or rather, Jesus used one person to do that. That's what Jesus does. Jesus has come to set us free to liberate us from the things that hold us captive. That's why the angels sing. That's why they praise God with a song that resounds across the whole welkin, the whole vault of heaven. That's why they praise God with a melody that never gets stale. And that's why we sing too. It is no accident that so many of the church's amazing hymns are found this time of year. We sing because we know who that baby in the manger really is, and we know what he will do for us. He's our savior. He's our liberator. Jesus has set us free. So here's my encouragement to you this Christmas. There's always a lot going on this time of year. Presents to be bought and wrapped and dishes to be baked and family to be welcomed. Amid all that, don't forget to sing. Don't forget to sing. Praise God. Praise God for setting us free in Jesus Christ. 
Praise him as though you are part of that heavenly choir that Charles Wesley has joined. And let me say this too. Don't sing quietly. Please sing loudly. One of my favorite sayings came from a pastor who said, if you have a good voice, sing out and praise God. And if you have a bad voice, sing out and pay him back. (laughs) This is a good time of year to sing loudly because Jesus has liberated us from the power of of sin. If that's not a good reason to sing, I don't know what is. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get connected here at Knox, please visit knoxprez.org.